page 54 in your workbook or in your textbook. Um, we've got the third article of the Apostles' Creed, and then four parts of the small catechism that talk about Holy Communion and the Lord's Supper, and um, talk about the institution of Holy Communion, the blessings of Holy Communion, the power of Holy Communion, and finally the reception of Holy Communion. Um, so if we have four, four distinct you know, sets of paragraphs and questions, then this must be a pretty important thing. And one of the things that we're going to watch for is like baptism, this is part of God's down arrow toward us. This is part of God's action toward us, for us, um, and for our spiritual good, where he does the work. This is not an up arrow toward, toward God, like our action toward God or our movement toward God. This is purely God's blessing for us. So following along on page 54, we're going to read through all of those parts together, and that will lay a good background um, to what we're going to be talking about tonight. Here goes. The third article of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own thinking or choosing, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth, and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church he daily and fully forgives all sins to me and all believers. On the last day he will raise me and all the dead, and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. And then the institution of Holy Communion. First, what is the sacrament of Holy Communion? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, under the bread and wine, instituted by Christ for us Christians to eat and to drink. Where is this written? The Holy Evangelist Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the Apostle Paul tell us, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. The Blessings of Holy Communion Second, what blessing do we receive through this eating and drinking? That is shown to us by these words, given and poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Through these words, we receive forgiveness of sins, life and salvation in this sacrament. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. The Power of Holy Communion Third, how can eating and drinking do such great things? It is certainly not the eating and drinking that does such things, but the words given and poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words are the main thing in the sacrament, along with the eating and drinking. And whoever believes these words has what they plainly say, the forgiveness of sins. The Reception of Holy Communion Fourth, who then is properly prepared to receive this sacrament? Fasting and other outward preparations may serve a good purpose, but he is properly prepared who believes these words given and poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. But whoever does not believe these words or doubts them is not prepared, because the words for you require nothing but hearts that believe. So far, so good. The, that is the catechism background, um, catechism summary, you might say, of what is the Lord's Supper. And that's going to, we'll see that reflected as we go through um, our reading tonight, because as we go through this class, um, we're looking at portions of God's word that pertain to the topic at hand. And those catechism discussions, um, they take the portion of God's word and then they summarize it nicely um, and kind of categorize it for us. So it's easy to wrap our minds around. But now we're going to look more precisely at the specific events that were the sharing and the um, yeah, the beginning of the Lord's Supper. So we're going to be beginning in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, verses 26 through 28. There we are. I'll read through verse 30. And if you're following along, you'll notice that this happens on Monday, Thursday is what we call it. Um, and it's the night when Jesus was betrayed. And for the Jewish people, 
sundown has already happened and that marks the start of a new day so it is the day when they would be eating the passover and that passover meal needed to be completed by the end of sundown the next day what we see as good as friday good friday um, the the difficulty there sometimes in understanding how some of this lines up is that we typically begin our day at midnight and that's how we mark the beginning of a new day um, whereas the jewish people mark their beginning of the day at sundown but even even with us there's a little bit of flexibility where you and i might say oh it's a new day even though it's been a new day for six or seven or eight hours but we say it's a new day when the sun rises um, so it's not not unknown anyway so here we are monday thursday matthew 26 verse 26 while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Um, you know, Matthew's translation here, um, this is the, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the 1984 NIV version that I'm using currently um, on my computer. This is my blood of the covenant um, and some manuscripts, I think this is what, yeah, the footnote letter B, some manuscripts include the new covenant um, because this, this beginning or this instituting of the Lord's Supper, um, we see it written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. Uh, so in that respect, you can see this is already pretty important. All right, so Jesus gives his disciples the Lord's Supper. Number one, um, following along in your workbook on page 55, uh, the two bullet points for summary. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, Jesus gave this special meal to his disciples. Though it is something we cannot explain with human reason, we accept what God's word tells us about the Lord's Supper. So number one, we call the evening Jesus gave his disciples the Lord's Supper, Maundy Thursday. Maundy comes from a Latin word that means command. Read John 13, verse 34, and 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25. What two commands did Jesus give to his disciples that evening? John 13, verse 34. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. And 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25. And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he also took the cup, saying, and we have to go over here and scroll up saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the question we had been considering, what two commands did Jesus give to his disciples that evening? Well, love one another. <laughs> That's the first one. A new command I give to you. Um, that command had always been there, um, but now they see it in a new light. And then secondly, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So number two, a sacrament is a sacred act that uses an earthly element connected with God's word. What are the earthly elements in the Lord's Supper? We've talked about this definition before uh, with the other sacrament that we have, the sacrament of holy baptism. What are the earthly elements in the Lord's Supper? bread and wine. Um, and you notice that even this is, is fairly common. Um, you know, water is quite common. Uh, bread is something that is fairly easy to make from nearly any grain. Um, and wine, that's, I mean, that's easy enough to find as well. Uh, number three, what does Jesus tell us to do with the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper? And this sounds almost simplistic, but it makes sense. And we have to ask it because we have to think about it. What does Jesus tell us to do? He doesn't tell us to parade it through the streets or bow down before it or say prayers before it. He tells us to eat and to drink. Number four, 
Because the Lord's Supper is connected with God's word, something is added to what we eat and drink with the bread and wine. What does Jesus say that we are eating and drinking along with those earthly elements? He says it's his body and blood. He says, take and eat, take and drink, take and eat. This is, uh, this is my body. Take and drink. This is my blood. He doesn't say this represents, or this reminds you of, um, or this has even become. (laughs) He says, this is, okay. This is my body and this is my blood. Number five, logical question, I suppose. How can we possibly be eating Jesus' real body and blood? Well, that's what God says. <laughs> um, it's a miracle. And it's it's just as much a miracle as the feeding of the 5,000 and, and even more of a miracle because the feeding of the 5,000, those people still died. Um, that wasn't a meal that that provided them the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. That wasn't a meal that opened heaven to them once again, that washed away their sin. Um, That was a meal that satisfied them for a day. And here in the Lord's Supper, Jesus provides us his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Number six, what special blessing does Jesus say that we receive in the Lord's Supper? This is looking at verse 28, back here in Matthew chapter 26. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what blessing? Well, we receive the spiritual blessing of the forgiveness of sins. And so, I mean, one of the, one of the major questions that we have to, we have to at least talk about is what does a person receive by mouth when he or she comes to the Lord's Supper? According to what Jesus has said here, uh, take and eat, this is my body, take and drink, this is my blood. Each person receives by mouth Christ's body with the bread and Christ's blood with the wine. Um, each person, and, and we don't receive, like each person receives a part of Jesus' blood, blood or a part of Jesus' body. Um, each person receives by mouth um, Christ's body with the bread and his blood with the wine. So number nine, number seven, why is Jesus' body and blood connected with forgiveness in the Lord's Supper? Well, he gave his body and shed his blood when he died on the cross. That would happen the very next morning. Um, and I, I guess it's good to pause right here and to look at the red box here on page 55, talking about celebrating Monday Thursday. While we celebrate the Lord's Supper and worship often, We set aside a special day each year to commemorate the day that Jesus gave this sacrament and also was betrayed by Judas. We celebrate Maundy Thursday on the Thursday before Easter each year. Maundy Thursday is a day in the broader context of Holy Week, which begins with Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Holy Week also includes Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross and comes to a triumphant conclusion with Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. Awesome. Our key term, the Lord's Supper, um, also known as Holy Communion, the sacrament in which Jesus gives us his true body and blood together with bread and wine for the forgiveness of sins. So that word communion comes from a Latin word that means sharing, um, which is the exact same way that the that the Greek New Testament talks about this, that this is something that is has a sharing in. So the bread and the body kind of share share together. Um, the body or the, the blood and the wine share together. Uh, communicants share this share this blessing together. There is a sharing together in the body and blood of Jesus. There is a communion as God comes and is. Um, Jesus brings his presence to us again, each one individually, um, by mouth, to say, to say, dear Christian, your sin is forgiven. All right, I can't turn the page here. All right, there we are. Um, page 56, you see a diagram for you on page 56, talking about the blessings of the Lord's Supper. These blessings were one for us on the cross, the blessings of forgiveness of sins, new life and salvation. And these blessings are distributed or given to us in the sacrament as each one receives Jesus' body 
and Jesus' blood poured out for us. Um, that, that aspect that each person receives by mouth these same four things, Christ's body and blood together with the bread and the wine, each person receives by mouth the same four things. And we're going to come a little bit later because there's a fifth thing that believers receive or unbelievers receive, that if somebody is a believer coming to the Lord's Supper in faith, then they receive the spiritual blessing of forgiveness in addition to what they receive by mouth, Christ's body and blood together with bread and the wine. Um, if somebody comes as an unbeliever or somebody who is um, uninstructed, then they do not receive the blessing of forgiveness. They receive the spiritual um, blessing or spiritual reality of discipline, of God's discipline. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, but there on page 56, we talk about we talk about some of the um, some of the different and improper understandings. Many, many people have trouble accepting Jesus' clear, simple words about the Lord's Supper. Listed below are several different teachings from different church bodies about what people receive when they eat and drink the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. And so, you know, perhaps helpful to think of this, that as a Lutheran, according to the Bible, we teach that each person receives by mouth four things, body, blood, bread, wine. Our first major term is representationalism. You see the word represent right there in the middle. This is the false teaching that the bread and wine are only, only, only represent Jesus' body and blood, that they are only symbols, that they are only symbolic. Um, I'd prefer if he had phrased that a little bit differently. The false teaching that the bread and wine represent Jesus' body and blood, but they are not actually there. And this is most of your evangelical churches. So basically every church that isn't, that isn't Wisconsin Synod Lutheran, Missouri Synod Lutheran, um, any of the, the dozen smaller ones, I suppose, but any church that isn't Lutheran or Catholic will basically teach representationalism. And this, they would say that the bread and the wine are there, but they simply represent, <coughs> they simply represent Christ's body and blood. And it's there to remind you um, and you participate in this as something that you should do, but they only represent, they don't actually do anything. It isn't actually, um, you know, in the end, isn't actually that big of a deal. All right. So that's on one side. Uh, the other side is transubstantiation, which is a fancy term that means to change from one substance into another substance. Um, so working again from that biblical understanding that each person receives by mouth Christ's body and blood and bread and wine, those four things, um, this is the reverse of representation. Transubstantiation is the false teaching that the bread and wine completely turn into Jesus' body and blood so that the bread and wine no longer exist. And so you've got representation, which says there is only bread and wine, and it's a nice reminder. Transubstantiation, which says that the bread and wine have disappeared and they are not there, even though the elements still may take the shape and look like and taste like bread and wine, they are not there. And they have completely become Christ's body and blood. And this is, this is taught by the Roman Catholic Church. And it's, it's very much tied with their understanding of, of ministry and pretty much everything else that they do. Because this, with representation, the idea is that this represents Christ's body and blood, and his body and blood are not actually there. But it's a good thing for you to do, because then you demonstrate that you are a Christian by participating in these things. And so what you do matters, because you need to make sure that you're, you're carrying out what they have turned into a work of the law. Transubstantiation, the Roman Catholic Church, which says that the bread and wine are no longer there, but they are only body and blood. The Roman Catholic Church says that you need to participate in this, um, and it needs to have been, you know, carried out and distributed by a priest, um, and that that priest then has done a good work. And you, by participating in this and receiving the body and blood of Christ, um, that you also do a good work, which helps to atone for some of your lesser earthly sins. And so they turn, they each have their different way of turning God's down arrow of grace into an up arrow of works. God's down arrow of his undeserved love for sinners turned into an up arrow of this is what we try to do to make ourselves right with God. And that's, yeah. 
it's difficult, but once we, once we understand, you know, basically you're working off of the, the biblical beginning that in Holy Communion, there are four things that you receive by mouth. Uh, Christ's body and blood together with the bread and the wine, along with his spiritual blessing of forgiveness for the believer. Then representation takes away the body and blood. Um, transubstantiation takes away the bread and the wine. And in, in so doing, they turn the Lord's Supper into something that it's not. They turn it into something that we do for God that either demonstrates the fact that we are Christian or is a good work by which some of our own sin is expunged from our record, so to speak. Um, next page, top of page 57, we have another key term, um, spiritual presence. And the key word in this, in this definition is the word only. Okay, spiritual presence, the false teaching that Jesus' body and blood are only present spiritually in the Lord's Supper, but not actually there. Um, this is the idea that, and, and this, uh, this goes hand in hand with representationalism, um, that, they, that the bread and wine are there, but they de deny that the body and blood of Jesus are there. They would say, well, let's try to find some way to make these Lutherans get off our back. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot of history there that goes back nearly 500 years, um, and most of it relates to German politics of the late 16th century, and it's dry and it's boring, except if you're, you're really kind of nerd out about those things. So if you'd like a little bit more about the politics and where this term came from, spiritual presence, then contact me and I can, I can find that for you. Um, but basically, Basically, there were in Germany, there were some state churches. They, the state church funded some Lutheran churches and some non-Lutheran churches, other churches that taught representationalism, which, as you recall, um, teaches only that the bread and the wine are there, but not the body and blood. And the, the governor or the guy in charge at the time said, you know what, why are we paying for two sets of churches? Why don't you two just get together, find some way to word it so that you can each hear what you think you believe. And that's where this term basically came from, spiritual presence. <clears throat> and over time, that truth came out that you cannot... <laughs> that that it's you, you can't really hide false teaching for very long under terminology because once you start defining your terms once you start understanding what's going on then the truth comes out so anyway that term spiritual presence um they give lip service to the idea that christ's body and blood are there but they don't actually mean it they say oh yeah jesus is here spiritually and it's like it's like your soul ascends to heaven and communes with christ but the question what do you receive by mouth in the Lord's Supper? And they would say, well, only bread and wine. And then your soul, your soul, you know, spends time with Jesus or something like that. Um, I haven't talked to very many of these people, at least not recently. And I know I'm not portraying their argument as well as I could or portraying their, their stance or their statement. But the basic truth of representationalism, of <laughs> that misunderstanding, is borne out here where they try to, you know, like I said, give lip service to the idea of the real presence and say, oh, but he is there spiritually. Well, Jesus says his body and blood is there together with the bread and the wine. This is my body. This is my blood. And so what do we receive by mouth? Which gets to our key term. And this is, um, if nothing else from all these terms that we just had, we just had a string of four or five or four or five of them. This is the one term for you to remember. The real presence is the biblical teaching that we receive the bread and wine with Jesus, real body and blood, um, that we receive this by mouth. I'll have to, um, have to continue to send in some edits. This is a relatively new course. Um, it's pretty well done, especially for only going through, you know, a couple of editors at our publishing house. But once it kind of gets released for all the pastors in our synod, then they get another wave of, of edits <laughs> because then you've got um, a lot of different pastors and a lot of congregations and a lot of new people asking very good questions. Okay. So the real presence is the biblical teaching that we receive the bread and wine with Jesus' real body and blood by mouth. Or you could even reverse that. We receive Christ's body and blood together with the bread and the wine um, in the Lord's Supper. So number eight, 
God has made it clear in his word that Jesus' death paid for all of our sins. For that reason, the Lord's Supper might seem unnecessary. Why do you think he gave us the gift of the Lord's Supper when his word teaches us so completely and clearly that we are forgiven? Hmm. Why do you think he gave us the Lord's Supper when he already said that, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his one only son? Well, God brings special comfort in the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper by giving us forgiveness in a way that we can see, touch, and taste. It's very personalized and individualized. That when pastor stands up and says, your sin is forgiven because Jesus died, lived, died, and rose from the dead, um, a person might think in the back of their minds, but yeah, Jesus, you wouldn't forgive me if you knew what I had done. Maybe that's shame. Maybe that's guilt. Um, maybe the thought is, yeah, that forgiveness is for everybody, but not for me, not for what I've done. It's for the person sitting next to me. And in the Lord's Supper, it's like Jesus comes to you personally and individually and says, here, you are forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 30, talking about preparing to receive the blessing of the Lord's Supper. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning of in verse 17, I believe. There we are. Before we go from page 57, you'll notice the um, Holy Communion's power. Jesus works by word. That gives forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, and word that strengthens faith, um, connected to the eating and drinking. That there is, you know, that's what whole, that's what Holy Communion is. <laughs> eating and drinking um, at the word and according to the promise of Jesus Christ. So first, yeah, first Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, prepared to receive the blessings of the Lord's Supper. This is the top of page 58 and two points that we see. First of all, God attaches warnings to the blessings of the Lord's Supper. And then secondly, we want to be properly prepared to receive all the blessings that God gives us in the Lord's Supper. We read, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good, or your, your worship services. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and to drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, in the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. <coughs> Excuse me. Number nine. The Apostle Paul listed some problems that the Christians in the city of Corinth were having in their congregation, especially when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. What were some of those problems? Verses 18 through 21. Maybe you can see that as you're following along in your Bible. Uh, verse 18 through 21. Oh boy, talk about problems. Corinth had them all. Um, verse 18, divisions among you. Um, verse 21, 
you go ahead without waiting for anyone else. I mean, that's rude enough in, in a regular setting, in a non-church setting, but in a place where Christian love is supposed to dominate and to watch out for the other, well, in Corinth there, one remains hungry, another gets drunk. Oh boy, that does not sound like a proper celebration, a properly reverent celebration of the Lord's Supper. So what were some of the problems? There were divisions. Some were going hungry, others were overindulging, and they were ignoring the needs of other people. Like the use of alcohol is not wrong, but drunkenness is, and that's always wrong. And for the Corinthians to, you know, be being getting getting drunk in the Lord's Supper, um, that's like, oh my goodness, Paul says, wait a minute, this is not good. Number 10, what does Paul say that we are doing in addition to receiving the blessings of the Lord's Supper when we celebrate this sacrament? That was verse 26. We are proclaiming the death of our Savior for our forgiveness. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's you know, a few things that we're doing here in the Lord's Supper. Eating, drinking, and proclaiming. Number 11. Why is receiving the Lord's Supper improperly something to take seriously? Paul writes in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Um, so verse 27, why is this something to take seriously? Well, it's sinning against Jesus' body and blood. And again, that kind of is a, another way of saying that Christ's body and blood are really present there. Because if his body and blood were not there, you can't sin against them. This um, goes against the argument of representationalism, that the bread and wine simply represent or remind you of Christ's body and blood. And he says, well, you are sinning against the Lord's body and blood. A reminder that they are there. Number 12. Paul says that we should examine ourselves. That's what he says in verse 28. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Look, read Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. If we look at our lives, what do we have to admit about ourselves? Over here in these supplemental passages, Luke 18, 9 through 14. Jesus told this parable to certain people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others. Two men went up to the temple courts to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself like this. God, I thank you that I am not like, that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. However, the tax collector stood at a distance and would not even lift up his eyes up to heaven. But he was beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If we look at our lives, what do we have to admit about ourselves? Well, that we have sinned against God, and we have failed to be the perfect people that he requires. And we admit this wholeheartedly. Um, we don't say, well, Lord, don't look over there because that's not your business. And we don't say, well, Lord, you, you know how it is. I was tired, and, and it, it had been a terrible day at work, and I just had a short fuse. And I know I shouldn't have said that, but you understand, right? No. We look at the law of God and see how have we measured up to this we haven't. That's why our Lord gives us his supper, personally and individually. Number 13. Earlier in our lesson, we looked at what some other Christian churches teach about the Lord's Supper. Some teach that the bread and wine are just pictures of his body and blood, or that his body and blood are spiritually but not actually present. What does Paul's warning in verse 29 say about such teachings? Look here. 29 right here toward the bottom. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's a scary thought. Believing 
Those false teachings, without recognizing the body of the Lord as the way he puts it, causes someone to eat and drink judgment on themselves, to put themselves under God's discipline. The word here for judgment um, is not damnation, as though they're eating and drinking damnation upon themselves. That's what the old King James Version, um, that's how the old King James Version translated this verse, that they're eating and drinking damnation upon themselves. But that is not the word here. Uh, the word here is crino. The word for damnation is kata crino. Um, and so crino eats and drinks judgment um, that we want to we want to discern. We want to recognize the body and blood of the Lord so that we do not put ourselves under God's discipline. He doesn't say what that is. He gives some examples here in a couple of verses later. Key term, examining oneself. Compare your life to God's law, confess that you are a sinner, and know that in the Lord's Supper you received Christ's true body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And there is a portion at the beginning of our, our red hymnal, and we're going to be switching to the other hymnal, our new hymnal, probably in a couple of years. But toward the beginning of the hymnal, oh boy, see if I can find it here. Yeah, it's page 150. Uh, 156. There's a personal preparation for Holy Communion. What does God tell me about myself and his holy word? What should I do if I am not aware of my sins or troubled by them? When I realize that I have sinned against God, what should I do? How do I receive his gracious forgiveness? What further assurance do I have that Jesus is mine and I am his? And how can I be certain that I receive all these blessings in the Lord's Supper? Sometimes we use that in place of the prayer of the church after the offering and before the Lord's Supper. Um, I try to try to have it about three or four times a year so that we have a remembrance and um, we recognize how it is that we are to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. So this preparation, really what it is, is remembering the original circumstances and coming in faith, that we are coming for forgiveness. We're not coming just to check the box. We're not coming just to go through the actions. We're not coming because it's a nice reminder. We're coming because our Lord gives us his body and blood again for the forgiveness of sins. Number 14, what had resulted for some of the people of the city of Corinth because they weren't receiving the Lord's Supper properly. That's in verse 30. Uh, that's worth looking at because it's serious. <laughs> Verses 30 and 31, I suppose. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Um, people were sick. A number of you are weak and sick. Some had even fallen asleep, which is a somewhat more pleasant way of saying that they died. God takes this seriously, right? Number 15, read 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. I think that's over here in our supplemental passages. Yeah, here we are. What does God say about those who participate together in the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a communion of the blood of Christ or a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ or a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. All right. So what does God say about those who participate together? Well, that we're expressing unity. And we need to be unified in faith as, as one loaf of bread, as one bread. Um, the, the oneness of the bread means the oneness of the people. And that, that idea already began back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10. And verses 16 and 17 is right toward the end of that flow of thought. Um, so if you go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, you'll see a little bit more um, background to that. Toward the bottom of page 58... Communing with other people requires complete agreement in all teachings of God's word. We articulate this wonderful agreement and unity by practicing what some call close communion or closed communion. This expresses the truth that in keeping with 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, we share the Lord's Supper with those who are one in faith, those who are close with us. 
Another way to look at this is that the Lord's Supper is closed to those who do not share our faith. We'll discuss this concept again when we cover church fellowship in more detail in Lesson 9. Basically, a simple idea. You can't have close communion with one another unless it is closed to those that are not instructed and do not share the same faith. Um, this isn't anything personal. It's just, what is your confession of faith? If you're not a member of a church somewhere, then sure, I'll instruct you. You can become a member of ours. If you are a member of a church somewhere else, that is your confession of faith until, until you aren't a member there anymore. Um, and if somebody says, but pastor, that's not, that's not what I believe. I don't agree with what they're doing there. I don't agree with what they teach there. That's basically putting your pastor in a difficult spot and asking me to read the, you know, that person is asking me to read their heart because by their action, by being members there and participating in the worship there, they are saying, this is what I believe. Then they come to me and say, well, that's not what I believe. I just go there because it's convenient, but I believe something different. Then that's putting your pastor in a position that says, okay, now read my heart so that you can know the truth, so that you can discern what the truth is here. And, um, and pastor, then you'll, you'll know, <laughs> then you'll decide. And, um, I mean, it's, it's a topic that comes up every now and then, and I try to explain it as well as I can. Um, but it's, it's actually intended for our good because we don't want somebody to put themselves under God's judgment. I mean, that's a terrifying thing to put oneself under God's judgment. Going on to page 59. The Holy Spirit strengthens our faith when we receive the Lord's Supper. What impact does that have on our lives? Read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. All right. Actually, it's right here. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. The love of Christ compels us because we came to this conclusion. One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died in their place and was raised again. So what impact does the Lord's Supper have in our lives? It enables us to live lives of thanksgiving to God creates and strengthens that new life of faith so that you can live a life of love toward your neighbor and toward God. Number 17, because God does so many amazing things for us through the Lord's Supper, how often will we want to receive this sacrament? Well, as often as possible. Um, he hasn't given us a timeline. He doesn't say you must do it at least, you know, twice a year or once a month or anything like that. We try to make it available um, pretty much every time you come to church. And um, pastor is always available to schedule with you. And, you know, a lot of times somebody will text or call or email and say, hey, pastor, how does, you know, next next Thursday at eight o'clock sound? Um, or I'm working the night shift, but, you know, would you be able to meet me at church at 530 in the morning for communion? or, you know, Tuesday, 6 p.m. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. But the fact that somebody recognizes the blessing of the Lord's Supper means that they will want to participate in the Lord's Supper. So the diagram there on page 59, and you can also check out Appendix 3. Um, I believe in Appendix 3, toward the end of your workbook, you'll have your own personal preparation for Holy Communion, talking about, you know, walking through some questions and, and answers that remind us of the biblical truths about Holy Communion and about ourselves. The diagram, reception of the Lord's Supper, um, prepared, <laughs> prepared participants partake often. There we go. So prepared means that we trust that we receive the true body and blood of Jesus together with the bread and the wine for the forgiveness of sins. Prepared participants, these participants are repentant sinners. They are able to examine themselves and one with us in what we believe and teach. And that requirement for um, the ability to examine oneself um, really discludes and leaves out a number of people. For instance, children, um, infants and, and young children are not able to consider their own lives and, uh, and compare it thoroughly to God's law. Um, 
those who are maybe in a coma, those who are, you know, on, on death's door, but not alert or awake, those who are struggling with dementia or some other mental, mental health crisis uh, related to that, like Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that. Very often, those people are not able to receive the Lord's Supper because they cannot examine themselves. A pastor isn't going to commune somebody who's in a coma. Um, there and people with Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, some days, some days they they don't know what day it is. Um, I love ministering to those people. It's always a joy, and sometimes it's heartbreaking, as I'm sure you have, if you've ever had that experience of a loved one struggling with dementia or Alzheimer's or similar. Um, but then some days, every now and then, there's like this day of absolute clarity where it seems like they're themselves again. And, um, you know, personally, that's where something like the liturgy that we use, having it, having it the same, especially in the Lord's Supper, every single time helps to ingrain those ideas in our head and ingrain that setting in our mind. Because I've even had that experience where, you know, I, I meet with somebody who has dementia and, and we're just conversing and this person isn't really tracking with me with what I'm saying. And the conversation is difficult, but enjoyable. Um, but then we get to the Lord's Supper and going through the, the preface, the Lord be with you. And this person was just right there and also with you. Um, and in, in some of those cases, that person is able to commune because with some help, maybe from pastor, then that person, you know, is able to examine oneself. Um, but there will be a time, especially if dementia is, is in your future or mine, there might be a time when you won't be able to commune. Um, and, you know, sometimes if somebody has a stroke or a heart attack or something like that, and they are on their deathbed, apparently, um, if they're, if they're not awake, awake and alert, then you can't commune them either. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that they have lost their faith or that they're not a Christian. Um, the word still works and I will show up at the bedside, the hospital bed of any person in a coma. And I'll talk to them just like they were looking me in the eye. Um, because, you know, as long as the heart is still beating, I've got the word of God and I'm going to share it with somebody and trust God in his promise that his word works. Okay. I'm sure. There's a few other questions that we could discuss there. Um, able to examine themselves also means also presumes that they're, they have been instructed that they know the setting and what it is that we are doing, that we recognize the blessings as well as the warnings. We recognize what it is that we received by mouth, as well as the spiritual blessing of forgiveness or the spiritual non-blessing spiritual warning of God's discipline. Finally, partaking often, receiving strength for spiritual struggle. This includes the peace of forgiveness, mutual encouragement, and power for Christian living. At Resurrection Lutheran Church, here at the corner of Holland, Sylvania, and Perrysburg, Holland Road, like I want to call, <laughs> what, what I like to call the longest intersection name in the city, we have an altar in the center, and the communicants stand around the altar, and it's beautiful because then even as you are partaking in the Lord's body and blood together with the bread and the wine for the forgiveness of sins, you can see your fellow Christians doing the same. That's going to wrap us up for tonight. We have a couple of brief connection questions, and you can think these through on your own a little bit more as well. First one, it has long been the practice in the Lutheran Church that people who are preparing to undergo surgery are offered or perhaps ask for the Lord's Supper. People who are facing other situations where there is an element of danger, for example, soldiers preparing for deployment, these people also cherish the opportunity to receive the Lord's Supper. Why is the Lord's Supper especially precious at such times? Well, it's an intimate, personal, and tangible way to receive the comfort of Jesus' forgiveness and to receive strength for the challenges ahead. Definitely. You might think of some other additions you could add to that. And then secondly, some people feel that the practice of close communion, only communing with whom you are in full agreement on the teachings of God's word, some people feel that this is unloving. In what ways would it actually be unloving to let anyone and everyone who attends a worship service to commune? Good question. Well, it potentially hurts the person who receives it improperly. And pastorally, 
it's not my job to hurt people spiritually. It's my job to provide clear, you know, clear direction based on the word of God. And I want you to be instructed so that you can receive the Lord's body and blood together with the bread and the wine for a blessing, that spiritual blessing of the forgiveness of sins. Um, I'm not here to, to hurt people. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, occasionally someone might say, well, you know, pastor hurt my feelings. And even in that case, I'd apologize and, and, um, and meet with them and say, I'm sorry. And here, can I, can we talk about this a little bit more on the base, based on the word of God? And can you forgive me? Because, you know, pastors are human too. Um, and sometimes we don't say things or address things very well. And that's the opportunity to express mutual forgiveness. And then what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture that instructed and, uh, and confirmed members um, gather together around the Lord's Supper as we receive forgiveness again together. And this is where the, the aspect of confirmation comes in and catechism instruction and this Bible instruction class. Uh, what it is, is instruction in the basic building blocks of the Christian faith so that you are equipped to examine yourself and so that you can, um, you can say that you are united in faith with us. All right, so homework on page 60. Um, there are some sections there in Luther's Catechism, you know, that doctrinal summary or topical summary of teachings, pages 350 to 370, 203 to 212, 371 to 373, and um, some terms. And I think I'm going to add one more picture here. This should be, yeah. We'll move this homework up here. Move this a little bit bigger. You can find this in your podcast app. Just search for RWJ and that will find all of our podcasts. Uh, RWJ like Raised with Jesus. Um, and RWJ membership is going to have all the audio from this class uh, for you to review or to um, you know listen as you're on the go. So that is going to wrap us up. Thanks for joining us. Have a good evening.